meet us now, we pray. Lord, and I ask for two things specifically. Lord, even just as burdened by brokenness that is now, Christopher Warren, Lord, and our dear brother, um, faithful elder to his church and his pain and suffering that he's in right now with health issues, Lord, would you please bring about healing? Lord, would you bring about a sense of your presence even now as he wakes up from sleeping? Lord, would you meet him? And then, Lord, I want to pray specifically for those who are here today, Lord, who have a deep sense of brokenness from things in the past, whether their own sin that feels like a deep well that they get drawn into and can't get out of, Lord, or for something, the sin that has been done around them or to them. God, we thank you that you are not only a God who gets us past things, but you redeem those things. You are involved. You are sovereign. And Lord, you care for your people. So would you minister that care to your people today? We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Kids, you may be dismissed. Thank you, band, for leading us so faithfully and worshiping the God that we serve in song. So why don't we give them up, just a hand. Um, thank you for your faithfulness. Even Josh uh, taking it on because Christopher was not able to be here uh, with the health issues he's having. And so Josh, even taking that on in the last couple of days and on top of everything else he has. Uh, so just commend you, brother, for your faithfulness to jump in. Um, grateful for it. And thank you, volunteers that are taking the kids. We're so grateful for you, as you probably can't hear me now because you're just about to walk out. Um, but so grateful for them to sacrifice and you guys as you rotate in and out of their serving uh, our church in that way. If you would, go ahead and turn to Joshua 9. Turn to Joshua 9. Well, we continue to walk alongside the people of Israel, as God conquers the promised land through the Israelites, the mission goes forward. Throughout the book of Joshua, there is miracles, appearances of God himself, city walls that are crushed from the top down, the sun standing still, giants' rocks falling from the sky, but there is also sin. And in this next chapter, there is a deceiver, Dressed to look the part. A dubious response to that deception. Almost comical. If you've read this text, you know what I'm talking about. And above it all, there is a hero who rules supreme and sovereign. You know, as I was studying this text, what came to mind, believe it or not, was actually the fable of Red Riding Hood. And you'll, you'll see why as we get through the text. The obvious difference is being read, Riding Hood is fake. It's just a story made up. This is the very word of God. But it, it came to mind, so I looked up the story. And there's lots of fascinating details that I actually don't remember from reading Red Riding Hood. Uh, yeah, it's kind of strange. So did you know that in Red Riding Hood, the reason the grandma is eaten in the first place, which is really morbid and creepy. Like, why do we tell our kids this stuff? But the reason the grandma is eaten by the wolf is because the girl actually disobeys her mom. 
So the mom sends out this girl to her grandma, Red Riding Hood, and uh, she tells her not to go off the path. And the wolf comes along and convinces her to go pick flowers. And in that process, he goes and eats the grandma, so then he can eat the girl, which doesn't really make a lot of sense. But either way, that's what his concoction, that was what his deception and plan was. And so the girl disobeys, which is why the mom, this whole thing happens in the first place. Uh, second random fact, the huntsman who comes in as kind of the savior at the very end, uh, he comes, the wolf is sleeping, has already eaten the kid and the mom, and he actually cuts it with scissors while it's sleeping. I guess it doesn't feel anything while it's sleeping, and pulls out the girl and the grandma, and, uh, and then the way they kill the wolf is actually filling it with rocks. Like, okay, random facts, that's very unique. Uh, and then on top of that, Red Riding Hood actually gets a shot at redemption at the end of the story and helps kill a wolf. It's like, okay, didn't know that either. For starters, and I'll say this to kids, what do you think, kids, what do you think is the main point of Red Riding Hood? Why was the author, why does the author have the story, the, the point, like what is the author trying to get at? It's trying to teach something. What would you say, kids, um, teens, I'll let you in as well, uh, students. What would you say is the main point of Red Riding Hood? Not just big, yeah, it's a good one. What was it? Okay, I think we're getting there. If maybe you haven't read it in a while, and I'll give you the, the kind of the main point. Anybody got anything else? I know everyone's nervous. Since Splatters. No, I don't know if the person who wrote this is a Christian. We actually don't know a whole lot about the history of the story. But either way, uh, y'all, we're kind of getting at some themes. There's themes that weave throughout, but the main point is kind of emphasized by the point where the girl is coming up to the house and then deals with what looks like her grandma, and it's actually uh, the wolf, which is really confusing why she's deceived by that. But either way, the main point is like, okay, what great ears you have. Does your grandma have that big of ears? Like, I just can't imagine that, but okay, cool. Uh, but the, the main point is revealed by the drama of the text. What's the climax? What's the resolution? What's going? And so the British Library puts it this way. The moral of the story is that people are not always who they appear to be, and strangers are not to be trusted. And that's revealed by this climax where she is deceived, and you realize, oh, grandma, this is not grandma, this is a wolf. But as we come into this next scene and taking the land, the main point revealed by the drama of the text from this divinely inspired author who's recounting history has organized it in such a way to give an emphasis, and I would say it is this. The mission of God requires and displays the wisdom of God. The mission of God requires and displays the wisdom of God. Sorry, I didn't make a slide for this, so I'll repeat it again. The mission of God requires and displays the wisdom of God. We will, as we're reading the story, see almost comical deception, similar to Red Riding Hood, and the trust of that deception and the consequences of that. But above it all, we will see a greater savior than a huntsman. So there's kind of three scenes to this chapter, through this text, and that's how we'll walk through the passage. So this is the very word of God. First scene, number one, growing darkness. Um, chapter nine, verses one and two. So read that with me. 
As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan, in the hill country, and in the lowland, and all along the coast of the great sea towards Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, so lots of ites, heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. So as we begin this next phase, this next chapter of the story, we're immediately introduced to a whole new and growing opposition. Previously in the conquest of the land, if you remember, the people of Israel had faced off with like one city at a time. If you remember Jericho in chapter 6, and then the people of Ai in chapters 7 and 8. But obviously there's mixed results there in both the defeat and then the conquering of them. In both instances, God ultimately crushes the opposition, fulfilling his promise to fight for the nation of Israel and to be with Joshua. But here in chapter 9, the beginning, we see there's not just one city, not just one city coming at them. No, but there are six different people groups are rallying to fight against the Israelites. And all these nations have been previously referenced as people for destruction, both in Exodus and the mandate to Moses, and then in Joshua chapter 2. And remember, as we're reading this text, these guys are not lightweights. These are not like little leftover nations, little puny people. No, they are heavy boxers. We know from their description in Exodus, as the spies went throughout the land, that they felt like they were grasshoppers compared to the people of the land. So these had the appearance of being big people overall. This would have been a terrifying sight. Think of the rallying of the orcs in Lord of the Rings or the massing of troops in the horse and his boy, if you like Narnia instead of Lord of the Rings, or in recent history, the massing of troops on the border of Ukraine. Imagine this sense of this growing anticipation. Why is everything calm? Why? Because the nations are gathering. The nations are raging to fight against God and his people. And then why are these nations amassing to fight? There's a little bit of a nuance I want us to see here. So verse 1 gives us a clue. Look at me when it says they heard this. Now, it's expanded in verse 4 when we see that the Gibeonites, who we'll be introduced to in a minute, heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai. So they were very aware of those defeats. However, there seems to be something more that is motivating these nations to rally. It's what happens between the two victories. If you remember in chapter 7, Achan disobeyed God, and one of the consequences of that was that the people of Israel were defeated by the city of Ai the first time, right? The unconquerable people were conquered because of Achan's sin. They had been beaten in a battle, And this seems to be what most prompts the rally fest. Earlier in Joshua, whenever it talks about the people of Canaan hearing what God had done, it talks about how their hearts had melted. They were the original snowflakes, as I would like to call them, right? Their hearts melted. But there is no mention of that here. There is no mention of that here. There seems to be a confidence about them, a growing, like, we've got this. They've seen, again, they've seen the unbeatable team get beaten, and they think that their gods can now defeat the one true God. 
And while their confidence is misplaced, they still have a greater confidence to fight the battle. From here on out in the rest of Joshua, there's a shift. There's a shift away from the melting of hearts to the confidence in this this emboldened people to fight against the people of God. So catch this, friends, as we zoom out. The sin of Achan not only meant that the anger of God was stirred against the people, that 36 Israelites died, that the people were defeated by Ai at one point, that his own family was killed, that he was killed, but the future battles would change. The future battles would change. The enemies of God's people would get a foothold, right? The view of Israel's God as beatable, that's what was happening. The enemy had confidence and emboldened to fight harder because of one man's sin. And does one man's sin in the promised land affecting everyone else ring a bell? Romans notes that sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so that death spread to all men because all men sinned. Major consequences. And friends, in a lesser way, do you see how our failings through temptations affect future battles against our flesh, the world, and the devil, right? We must battle the lie that seeing, coveting, taking, and hiding, which is what Achan did, and his consequences are going to stay contained to that moment, right? That's one of Satan's lies is, oh, this is just about now. This is just about this moment. You can give in. That's okay. It's not going to affect a whole lot, right? Where we sow, we will reap. Where we give into unrepentant lust, it will make us weaker for the next battle. Where we hold on to bitterness, it will affect our ability to be gracious to the sins of others. And our sin affects not only our heart, our flesh, but also our spiritual battle. Ephesians 4, 26, 27 puts it this way. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And then what? Give no opportunity for the devil. So friends, we must not wonder why lust comes knocking louder after we have given into looking at something inappropriate. Or why the battle over bitterness gains a new level of stubbornness when we hold on to anger against our spouse. When we give Satan a door, there's a crack in our armor. And also, as far as the world goes, the world is watching the way we live. The world is watching the way we live. The way we live adorns the gospel, whether in a good way or a bad way. I love the part about Brooke talking about the speaker. And what attracted her to the gospel in the first place was watching someone who loved well, who spoke well, who lived a gracious life, and how that brought her in. So that's the way God uses our lives. But on the negative side, how often are you giving the world stones to throw at the church because of the way you live your life? How do you joke at work? Students, do you enter in crude speech with your buddies at school? 
Do they see a double life, a double standard? Kids, how do you talk about your parents to your friends? How often do you give stones to throw at the church? Friends, we are united to Christ, and the way that we live our lives affects people's view of the Savior we are united with. God has united us, and he, he has done this by his mercy and grace. But it affects people's view of God himself. So we must not expect the world to be attracted to the gospel if our lives reflect the world. But as we move on from this ominous scene of the nations gathering together against Israel, the lens zooms a little, changes to the drama that is unfolding concerning the Gibeonites. And boy, is it a drama. It is a major drama. We'll get into it. So read verses 3 through 13 with me. So this is scene number 2. 3 through 13. But when the inhabitants of the Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they, on their part, right, contrasting them with the other, other nations and other their own people group, they, on their part, acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins and worn-out torn and mended with worn-out patch sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes, and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come. Because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a, heard a report of him in all that he did in Egypt, and that all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and the king of Heshbon, and to Og king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey, and go to meet them, and say to them, We are your servants. Come now. Make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It is still warm when we took it from our house as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. Behold, now it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst, and these garments and the sandals of ours are worn out from this very long journey. So scene number two, a plot of deception, and then we'll get into the leader's response. So at the beginning of this scene, we're introduced to the Gibeonites. But it's important to know, who are they? The author lets, us, lets the reader in on this enigma in verse 7 when he describes them as Hivites. Okay, Hivites, you probably remember just because we just saw it in verses 1 and 2. They are people who are supposed to be destroyed. And they're also the people group that is coming against the people of Israel. So there's this group, the Gibeonites, in the Hivite people that are coming to deceive Israel. They're coming to deceive Israel. And not only are they part of the Hivite group, but they are also described in chapter 10 as a great city, 
like one of the royal cities. And because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. This city is no slouch of a city. And so this great Hivite city decided to break off from the rest of the pack and go a different route. They have heard of the destruction of Jericho and Ai, and they fear for their lives. So what do they do? They hatch a plot to deceive the Israelites in verses 4 and 5. Right? So this is contrasting the nations that are rising up. Gibeon is trying to get peace and not be destroyed. They are like, enjoy yourselves, nations. We're going to go do our own thing. You know, you guys, I'm not sure it's going to work out well, but you nations, you can go meet together and come up with your grand plot. We're going to break off. We're going we're to come up with a concocted plan to deceive the Israelites. And so with a sanctified imagination, I can imagine kind of the leaders of Gibeon being like, hearing what God has done through Israel, right? They've heard of cities smashed from the top down and all this, AI getting destroyed and they're terrified. So I can imagine this kind of panic moment of, oh no, we're next and we don't want to be destroyed. And as they're panicking, they're trying to think of things to do. Okay, you know, we can't do that. We can't beat them. What are we going to do? So they're kind of sitting around a table, maybe, something like that. And uh, they're, they're pondering. They're trying to figure out what to do. And all of a sudden, you know, a spy raises his hand. And he's like, well, you know what? I've got an idea. I just listened for hours. It was about six hours to the Israelites talk about all the laws of their God and there, there was one thing that stuck out to me. There's this covenant stipulation from their God that if a country outside the promised land wants a covenant, they can do it. So, I got an idea. We could act like a country from far away. And the leaders are like, okay, cool, you're it. You know, you're hired. You're on. Come up with the plot. The tension of the story sits around this. Multiple times, God has commanded the people of Israel not to covenant with the people in the promised land so that they are not led astray to worship their idols. The, the, the land is to be purged of the people and their gods because worship and covenant loyalty is at stake. However, there is a clause in the covenant that peace and it's actually a command that peace is to be offered to a nation outside the promised land first. So they're to offer the possibility of a covenant of peace. And then in some sense, those people groups will be brought in to the people of God. So Deuteronomy 20, it's in verse 10 and 15 through 18. We'll read that here. It'll be up on the screen. This is describing it. So when you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall be forced labor for you and shall serve you. Thus you shall do to the cities that are, catch this, far from you, which are not the cities of the nations here, but the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, right? He's giving them the land. You shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you should devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, sorry, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices 
they, that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. So it appears that the Gibeonites are aware of this. And they are confident that the Israeli God, Yahweh, will accomplish it. And they are terrified for their lives. So they hatch a plot to go ask for a covenant disguised as if they are from far away. Verse 5 gives their plot. They, on their part, acted with cunning, went and made ready provisions, and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn-out and torn-mended with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes, and all their provisions were dry and clumbly. In other words, they were trying to dress like grandma. They were like, this is how we're going to get it done. And then the tension of the story grows as they implement the plot of deception. The original reader and us are supposed to feel it. This is an important moment. Will the leaders of Israel be deceived? Will they be deceived? Here comes the test. So a special delegation from the people of Gibeon with their carefully concocted plan come from Gibeon to the Israeli encampment at Gilgal. See, Gibeon was nestled in the high country near Jerusalem, and it was about a 20-mile hike, which really wasn't a long journey for the people of that day, down to Gilgal. They would have been coming from the hill country, the high country. And then once they get there, they shoot straight to the matter of their travel, right? They want to make a covenant. And pretty much the best thing that comes out of the people of Israelites, the Israelites' mouth, is their first response. Look at verse 6 and 7. We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? So they're very aware. They have just recounted in chapter 8 the whole law. They know, the people of Israel know, they cannot make a covenant with the people local. And it's kind of comical in some ways. It's almost like, it's almost like Red Riding Hood, right? Like, you don't look like grandma. You look something else. But, as we see, it doesn't matter ultimately. And so they ask, how do you know that, or how do we know that you aren't a wolf, right? So then comes, after this, their craft of deception by conversation and then using their pre-planned, old-looking travel wear and resources. First, after the question comes back to them from the men of Israel in verse 7, they immediately shoot the conversation up the chain of command to Joshua, or Joshua intervenes either way. We can't really tell but immediately gets bumped up to the highest command. It's kind of this take-me-to-your-commander moment. And the Gibeonites lay it all out there. First, they begin with kind of smooth talking. They begin with, in verse 8, we are your servants. And then they begin with a modified origin story in verses 9 through 11. It says, we have come from a very distant country. It's kind of funny. They don't even like try to explain where that country is. They're just like, yeah, we're from far, far away. Like, you wouldn't know it. Like, sorry, I can't really explain that country to you because it's so far from you. You know, that's kind of what's going on here. It's like, okay. And Israel doesn't even appear to ask them, like, okay, uh, what country are you talking about? It seems like they have knowledge of the land. But yeah, they're like, okay, we're from very far. Sure, Grandma, you're from very far, okay? And note, they express faith in God in verses 9 and 10. But it's kind of with a slant. Everything they say they heard about is before the Jordan River. No mention of Jericho or Ai, which is why they're there. Remember verse 4, we heard about Jericho. 
they heard about Jericho and Ai. So they're deceptive, they're keen. We've heard about the past things way back when. We don't really know what's current these days. We're not from here. And then they set up themselves for the greatest cleverness that they seem to have concocted, which is their old supplies. Right? So verse 11, our elders told us to take provisions, kind of hint, hint, you know, like we have these provisions, by the way, and they've proved that we're from a faraway country. Now let me show them to you. You know, you really want to see them. And so they go through the whole spill, the clothes, the donkey, the bread, all looks old. And right here is the climax of the whole story. Will Red Riding Hood be deceived by the wolf? Will the people of God, and specifically the leaders of the people, be deceived and enter into a covenant with this people? Will God's people in God's place be deceived by a slippery serpent? And verses 13 and 14 give us the sobering answer. This is the response of the leaders. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them, See, the request had gone up the chain of command, but did not make it to the top. The top is God himself. The men of Israel and Joshua forgot who their commander was. There is no rebuke here in the text for the covenant they made. Um, Throughout this whole story, as we read on, we'll see that they were sincere in their belief that this was a faraway nation. They thought they were being obedient to Deuteronomy 20. But what they were rebuked for, what's the emphasis? They did not ask counsel from the Lord. And notice also that the author points out that they only took some of their provisions. So they were so confident in their own observation that they didn't really need God. Right? We've got our own wisdom. They, really, they only asked like three questions. You would think if like this is a major covenantal moment, which is binding, that you would uh, maybe ask a few more questions and maybe go seek the Lord, but they in their confidence of their obedience to God without relying on God himself decide to make a covenant. So friends, the mission of God requires the wisdom of God. The mission of God requires the wisdom of God. I imagine based on the context, right, they just read the whole word of God, there's a kind of delusion of spiritual competency. They have just read every word of Moses. They were people of the word. They knew not to make a covenant with the people of the promised land, but they did. And friends, I commend you for being people of the word. Um, Mike was talking to another pastor. They were just talking about stuff in the church. And that pastor noted, like, man, your people are people of the word. And I agree wholeheartedly. But we must be careful of the delusion of competency. We must be careful. How often do we think that just because we know the word, we've got everything memorized, we know the right church answers, that we don't really have to pray and ask for counsel from the Lord to live out the word? 
You may be familiar with the book. It's called Just Do Something. Or you may have been impacted by its ideas. And if you've never heard of it, you can guess at this point what, or you can guess what the main point is. Uh, towards the end of the description, if you're reading the description of the book, the author writes, and here's the main kind of main thesis, God, he's already revealed his plan for our lives, to love him with our whole hearts, to obey his word, and then after that, to do what we like. And I would give a wholehearted amen to the first two points, right? A wholehearted amen. Love God. Honor him with our whole hearts. But I would, I would give a caution. We must be careful with that third point. Do what we like. See, the leaders of Israel had the first two down. They were honoring the Lord. I imagine they were trying to honor the Lord. They're, they're, they're doing what they think is right. But the reality is they did what they wanted to. And they get rebuked for it. And right, The idea of the book, and to give a caveat, is to keep us from introspection that's unhealthy. Right? We must be upward and outward. We must be serving other people, and we must be leaning forward. All those things are correct, but I would just have this caution that we must seek counsel. We must be praying people in order to faithfully honor the Lord. The mission of God requires the wisdom of God to be faithful. And I even had a, I had a Boyce professor, solid reformed guy, um, so I went to school in Louisville, Kentucky, and a uh, very godly guy, recommend him, not going to say his name or anything like that. He's written books, articles, all this stuff. And I remember one day in class, and I think he did this to get a shock effect, but he was like, pretty much looked at us and he was like, okay guys, love God, read his word, know his word, and then the Lord doesn't speak, so don't wait for it. It was just like the shock effect of like, what, what does he mean? And if I were to look gracious upon that moment, I get it. He's saying, don't, don't turn in on yourself right? Like, don't be waiting always at every time, and I don't have time to get into decision-making, the will of God, and all these other pieces, so don't hear all that. But what, I, what we must be careful of is just do something mentality. We must caveat it with seeking counsel from the Lord. And friends, <laughs> Joshua had access to God in the covenant, yet he failed to use it. But the Hebrews author of Hebrews makes it clear that we have a greater, both, well, three things, offering for sin, a greater mediator, and a greater access to God. What he longed to see, we now are a part of as Christians. If you are in Christ, the author of Hebrews writes, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. See, Joshua failed as the mediator, but Jesus has not and will never fail in his mediation and as a result of that, you and I have greater access because of the work of Christ. And we can come expectantly to ask for wisdom. James 1.5 puts it this way. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. Right? And this wisdom may not come 
always in subjective ways. But God will always give it. So we must ask. We must seek. The door to God's presence is wide open and he beckons his children to come. To come and he will give wisdom liberally. He cares for you. However, as we continue on through the story of chapter 9, we see more clearly God's wisdom on display in spite of both the Gibeonite deception and the pride of Israel. So scene 3, everything made clear, verses 16 through 27. Verses 16 through 27. And at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on their third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Sheparoth, Biroth, and Kirith Jerim. So it appears that there was kind of this coalition under the Gibeonites. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This will be to, to do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Joshua summoned them and said to them, Why did you deceive us? saying, We are from a very far country when you dwell among us. Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood, and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Because it was told to your servants for certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give to you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day colors of wood and drawers of water for the congregation, for the altar of the Lord to this day, in that place that he should choose. So as we enter this section, it doesn't take long for the people of Israel to realize, oh snap, we blew it, right? They fell for the wolf in their midst. The Gibeonites are their neighbors. And what's clear to the reader that we've known on the long, we've had the benefit of hindsight, they learned in real time. And once the Gibeonites returned to their city. And in the text and even in real time, it all happens so fast, really highlighting the folly of the Israelites. So what do the Israelites do? Well, they form a mob, of course. Form a mob and storm over to Gibeon. See, everyone is mad. The people are mad and, won't, and want to kill the Gibeonites, verses 18 and 26. And then the people are mad at the leaders because they won't let them kill the Gibeonites. And we don't really know if this is like holy anger, um, anger because of the covenant that was made, or if this is anger because they really just wanted to ransack the city. We don't really know. But nonetheless, they're mad. However, there is an accident on the leaders saving the Gibeonites from the people. So it really, it it does appear that their motivation was to kill. But nonetheless, they are angry. And then in verses 22 and 27, 
It tells the same story, so there's kind of two things going on here. It tells the same story, but it zooms in on the conversation that Joshua has with the Gibeonites. And you see, Joshua is mad as well, right? He begins with, why did you deceive us? It kind of cracks me up. It's like, why, it's like talking to your kid and be like, why did you take a cookie from the cookie jar? You know, that's what's going on here. So why did you deceive us? And he's mad at them. And, you know, it's funny, too. It's like, even if they were to convulge things, they, if they had somehow ulterior motives, it's not like they're going to tell him. But either way, why did you deceive us? And the response is telling. For all their sin of deception, there does seem to be a faith like that of Rahab. In their response to Joshua, they state in verse 24, why? Because it was told to your servants for certainty that the Lord your God has commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight, do to us. It appears that just as Rahab had faith, the Gibeonites to have faith. Notice the words for certainty, right? They knew that Yahweh commanded their destruction and they believed that it would happen. And although they did it in a sinful manner and they deceived the Israelites, it appears that they are casting themselves upon Yahweh. They're casting themselves upon the mercy of Yahweh. And verse 26 sums up the response, so he, Joshua, did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. So this is Joshua's curse upon them. And in part, it's, it's given in Deuteronomy 20, if you remember, right? So for the nations that are far off, far off you're supposed to tell them and they are to be servants of you. However, there's an added piece that Joshua gives them, which is fascinating. They are to be cutting wood and drawing water for what? The altar, which is actually a sign of covenantal blessing, to be near the altar, to be near the presence of God. Right? You read in Psalms, David longing to be near the presence of God, longing to be near the temple, which that would come further. So did he catch it? Even though Gibeon sinned in their deception and Israel sinned in their pride, God was, in his mysterious wisdom and sovereignty, bringing Gentile people into covenantal blessing. One author notes, the parallels between the story of Rahab and the story of the Gibeonites seems more than just coincidental. The author of Joshua appears to be demonstrating on more than one occasion and thereby reaffirming that God indeed intends to bless all the families of the earth through Israel, as unwitting as Israel may be, according to his promise to Abraham. That is glorious. Even in the Old Testament, God had a heart for and was saving Gentiles, even if in the mystery of his providence, it was through the disobedience and failures of his people. And friends, later in Scripture, this reality becomes all the more clear. As a man would enter the promised land, 
not under pretense, not disguised, not a wolf in sheep's clothing, but no, the good shepherd. The very truth himself, the person that the people of Israel were supposed to make covenant with. And they killed him. Our sin nailed him there. They rejected the one they were meant to embrace. And friends, God used their rejection of Jesus to bring Gentiles, us if you are not a Jew, Gentiles into the covenant with him. Romans 11, 30 through 33, Paul writes, For just as you, and I'll fill in, Gentiles were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their Israel disobedience, so they too now have been disobedient in order that by their mercy shown to you, they also may receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all, And then he goes into praise. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom of knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. So friends, God in his mystery of his wisdom, the disobedience of Israel that culminated in the rejection of Jesus brings in the nations, you and me, into relationship with the living God. And friends, how much more Having the Father not spared his own Son, will he work all things for our good? I love that that passage was read, Romans 8. He will work all things together for our good. Now the problem is, you and I want to put asterisks in there, right? Paul doesn't. He goes on to describe the manifold things that will come against his people. And what does he say? Nothing, nothing will separate you from the love of God. Neither life, nor death, nor principalities, nor things to come, nor anything in heaven or on earth will separate you from the love of God. But you and I so often want to throw in there, what about my sin? What about other people's sin? This this must be a sidebar that Paul doesn't really want to deal with. Is that the case? Nothing separates you from the love of God. God uses in his perfect holy wisdom even your sin, the consequences of your sin, for your good and his glory. See, sin is deep, and his grace runs deeper. The wisdom for the Christian, towards the Christian, is that they shall have grace. They shall have unmerited favor and strength. And shall we sin so that grace may abound, as Paul addresses? May it never be. Friends, if you and I look into the mysterious wisdom of God and how he works all things together for our good and his glory, and we run into sin, there is doubt about our salvation because we do not understand grace. Grace motivates us forward, motivates us into the heart of God. See, friends, where you and I sin, we get to experience God's forgiveness. Where you and I sin, we get to experience grace and mercy. And this absolutely... The text, the scriptures do not minimize our sin and responsibility. But what it does is magnify the wisdom of God. There is major consequences to sin. But for those who are in Christ, through those who are called according to his riches, called according to his mercy, 
He is working all things for our good. And this magnifies the wisdom of God. It does not mean that God is somehow corrupt in any way. But rather, it magnifies his mysterious wisdom. His wisdom is on display. And we see this even at the beginning of chapter 9. You remember, the sin of Achan leads to the gathering of the nations and the consequences that are going on. But in chapter 11, we get a heavenly view of what's going on. Chapter 11, the author writes, There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle, talking about people of Israel. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord had commanded Moses. So God ultimately uses the sin of Achan to bring about the destructions of their enemies and the enemies of God. Do you behold the wisdom of God? Friends, you and I do not want a God that is dethroned by our sin and mistakes. If you are big enough to outsend God's wisdom and grace, there really is no salvation. Even as saints in Christ, as united Christ, how often do we sin? And friends, also, it is mysterious. You and I do not want a God where we can understand every decision he makes and all his wisdom outworkings of his sovereignty because if we could understand everything, he would be no different than us. Our sin is great and his grace is infinitely greater. If I were to sit down with each one of you, we are having a conversation, candid conversation, no barriers, we're just being honest. I think oftentimes, if we search our own heart, there would be areas of sin that overshadow God's grace. Kind of feel, have dethroned God, right? I'm outside of God's love because of X. God's grace doesn't really apply to me because of Y. We often think too much of ourselves and have dark thoughts, as Dane Ortland talks about, have dark thoughts about God. And if you're lost here today, there's probably a suspicion in your heart, too, that your sin is too big for God to handle. I can't come to him. I don't know if he can work with this mess. This is too much for him. The hole I've dug myself in is too big. The darkness of my sin is too dark. I can't be redeemed. I can't repent. What does he say? What does Jesus say? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come. Friends, in the mystery of God's sovereignty, it was our sin that nailed him there, and God brings about salvation for his people. Right? The wisdom of God is on display in the church, and God redeeming a people, and even the angels long to look. And that is what you and I get to be a part of and get to experience. So, friends, two questions to end it. Do you delightfully rest in the perfect wisdom of God? Are you like Paul and declare, oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God? Or is the disposition of your heart to point out all the ways you think he could have run the world better. Catch that? 
Is there a posture of your heart that says, I don't understand how this, maybe it's something that's been done to you. Some of you guys have probably experienced unspeakable pain and tragedy, things done against you that still to this day make you shiver. Do you believe that God and his wisdom can redeem that? And does redeem that for his children? Do you see God's hand of wisdom upon your life? Right? We must be aware and resting in the wisdom of God that supersedes all things. And then does your, number, number two, does your own sin or your own view of your sin overshadow your view of God's grace? Are you more aware of the million things God is working or in the ways in which you have failed? If we are more aware of the failings than we are of God's grace, then we need a recalibration. Our life is not primarily a sin hunt, but a resting in God and His grace. This is the tone, the theme of Scripture. A dear brother, C.J. Mahaney, pastor in Sovereign Grace, one of the founders, talks about, for every one look at your own sin, take ten looks at the cross. Is that the posture of your heart? And friends, there is a joyful reality to that, because that is what it means to be united to Christ. We are given so much grace upon grace that both sanctifies and motivates and gives us grace to see his wisdom over all things. So friends, take ten looks at the cross for every one look at your sin. And if you ever doubt the wisdom of God, look to the cross, right, where the greatest sin in the world, the killing of God's own son, became our salvation. And friends, the, the drama of this text frees us up to realize that it's not about us, it's about God. God's the hero. God's the one doing all this. God's the one who's overseeing everything and is working all things for good for the, his people. So let's just take a few minutes and ponder that. Even just ponder, do I take more looks at my own sin than I look at the cross and the grace of God? Do I withhold areas of my life and say, no, God, this is outside of God's wisdom and care? Or do I submit all that is in my life, whether sin or suffering or sin done to you, do I submit it to God's care and say, okay, Lord, I want to change and I don't understand why these things happen or why these things happen to me, but I submit and know that you are working in and through them. So why don't we just take a few minutes and do that, um, just to submit ourselves before the Lord. I'll take about five minutes. Sean, you can go up and play in the background, and then I'll end this in prayer.
God, we, we extol you for your mysterious wisdom and your grace. Lord, we don't understand fully the connections between our own responsibility and how you work, but yet we know that above it all, you reign. Lord, you reign, and you are after your, the good of your people. And Lord, you will accomplish it. There is no being outside of your hand for the Christian. Lord, there's nothing outside of your hand for the Christian. And Lord, that brings us such great hope and joy, Lord, and trust. Even though we don't understand, we can rest. So Lord, would you do that in our hearts? Would we, would be, would we be wooed to your heart because of <laughs> a better understanding of your wisdom and grace, Lord, for your glory? And Lord, I pray for those who do not know Christ who are here today. I ask that they would run from themselves and run to Christ. Lord, there is destruction for those who do not repent, but there is such grace and mercy for those who do. So Lord, I ask for mercy and grace. And we're grateful for your mercy. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We're grateful for your church. Love you guys. It's always a blessing to be here on Sunday mornings. You are dismissed. And then there's the Hope Kids meeting for those who are involved. Uh, coming in a little bit. So love you guys. You're dismissed.